You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at another new sleepy summer week at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. And yes, it is already Monday afternoon. And amazingly, I mean, this summer has just flown by. I can't even believe it. Uh, The kids are already going to go back to school. I'm already going to have my oldest one going into third grade. Getting old here. My hair is getting gray. Um, Slow weekend for me just because I was away at a family event. And and by the way, I I, I just have to tell you this. My wife and I were joking about this. You know, it's not just a, a radio ad here. Purple mattresses really makes a difference. This is the first time. I've been away without my purple pillow. And we had great accommodations where we stayed. I mean, don't get me wrong. We had a, a, a great host, but it's just – it's not the same. You just don't sleep as well. And that's why you need to go to purple.com, promo code Daniel. Get your free purple pillow with your purple mattress, the best design, most comfortable mattresses around that are also the most scientifically constructed to give you a good night's sleep. Um, Because incidentally, I am actually very tired because I went without my purple mattress for a couple couple nights there. And uh, I'm just kind of dazed. And, you know, you come back, slow weekend, didn't really – you know, this is one of those times I probably went for like 48 hours without even looking at anything, which was awesome. And, you know – it's it's amazing to watch how people are at each other's throats over Antifa versus these uh, 3.4 white nationalists that turn out that no one would ever follow them if the media wouldn't focus on them. And again, when you look at what actually matters, really the main focus of this show, the actual policies, the actual strategies and leverage points – for those policy outcomes, there really isn't much of a difference between the two sides, or they certainly don't realize it. You know, um, every time we have a get together, so so everyone in my family is, you know, they're on the right, conservative leaning type of people. Um, especially, you know, most are more religious. I mean, it's the same religious secular divide you have in most families in most parts of the country. We have this one uh, cousin, one, one of my father's cousins, so I guess that makes her first cousin once removed. Very eccentric type of person, kind of whacked out, um, and just like railing against Trump every second. And I, I was just laughing my head off because, you know, everyone has their binary idolatry. You know, when, when uh, Obama was in power – our side was everything was Obama, Obama, Obama. Now everything is uh, for, for their side, Trump, 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 foaming at the mouth. And you know, if you understand the way government works, it's a lot more than one person, for better or for worse. And I, I, I was laughing because some of the things she was complaining about Trump, she doesn't realize Trump was actually 
or his administration was continuing or even doing liberal policies that she would actually like if she could only see beyond her beyond her blind hatred. And uh, it's just I'm, I'm not often exposed to this on a personal level, but it, it's just so ridiculous. And then you know when you come back and you see this news of the fighting and everything with Antifa versus you know versus this tiny uh, uh, cabal of white nationalists, everyone's at each other's throats. But the funny thing is, if you look at our Congress, you look at what they're doing on these budget bills, and again. A budget is a reflection of your priorities. That's what's actually going to get funded. That's what's going to get enacted. They're awfully close together. You know, as we noted last week, and I got a lot of good feedback on this, um, there's a lot of, even in the executive branch, which you would think, you know, there you, you, you control it by virtue of winning the presidential election. It's full of liberals, full of vacant uh, positions as well. And then obviously the third branch of government, the courts, control everything anyway. So it's just fascinating watching everyone give commentary on this when really the same stuff continues. And what I wanted to start out with today before the main discussion, I I really wanted to have a deep discussion about immigration today because of some stuff going on in the news with Laura Ingram's comments, um, the reaction to them that this is not – the America we're used to, America's changing, what that means, um, as well as this ridiculous hit piece by, you know, talk about crazy cousins, crazy uncles in your family. Uh, <clears throat> Stephen Miller's uncle um, writing this opinion piece in, in Politico, bashing his nephew, saying, Oh, this is not our values. Your family wouldn't have been let in if not for, if, you know, if your policies would have been in place, yada, yada. But, um, Ridiculous. We'll get to that in a minute. I just wanted to talk about the budget. So it turns out the Senate is coming back to town this Wednesday. If you remember, they made a very big deal about canceling part of the August recess. Oh, we're going to stay in and work. We're going to show the American people that Democrats don't want to work, and we have a lot of important business to, to complete. So, you know, they're going to come in August 14th. Now, what's amazing is whatever strategy we lay out on this show, that would be the most auspicious, the most likely to yield conservative policies, the most likely to connect with the American voter and actually turn the tide of the midterm elections, which are not headed in a good direction for Republicans or conservatives. They always wind up doing the opposite of what I suggest. And and there's a reason for it, because they're not conservative. You know, Republican leadership in the Senate, most Republicans in the Senate are not conservative at all. They fundamentally share the goals of the left. They're just less excited about it. So you know, one of the strategies we said was that a, you know, McConnell should have seven-day work periods in middle of August just to wear them down, so the Democrats would relent on some of the procedural, um, <clears throat> the procedural blocks that chew up a lot of time in confirming nominees. Because what we noted at the end of last week's show on Thursday is that, you know, 
there's a lot of assistant attorney general level positions and the equivalent of those positions in other departments that are not filled yet. It's a very big problem. So he's not really doing that. He's coming back in. I mean, they, they are going to confirm a couple more of these people, but it's not as aggressive as he should be. But moreover, we laid out a budget strategy, and I said they should do a two-pronged strategy. Have a security package and then the rest of the spending bill. So there's 12 appropriation bills, if you remember um, you know, the way government is funding. And our idea was to take defense, which is always regarded as the most important. You can't hold that up. And couple that with homeland security. And that's where you want to put in all your priorities on sanctuary cities, on the phony unaccompanied alien children, the phony asylum. The courts, all the riders we need in, and then the appropriations for more ICE agents and for the border wall you would put into that bill, and you would pair it with the military, and you have won the entire August. You beat the heck out of Democrats. They're holding up you know, Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, Heidi Heidkamp, um, even you know, Bill Nelson in Florida, Tester in Montana, Casey in Pennsylvania, any Democrat who could be vulnerable, McCaskill in Missouri. And just rake them over the coals with terrorism, drugs, MS-13, you name it. One like almost omnibus, but not in the traditional way of viewing an omnibus, but an omnibus safety security legislation. And then once you beat them on that, then you could focus on the rest of the domestic policy without having the military held hostage. And that's when you could focus on overall decreasing spending. That was our strategy. So you know what they're doing? They're actually taking the strategy of pairing defense with another bill, except they're not doing it with Homeland Security. They're doing it with labor, HHS, and education, the worst agencies. Now, what's very interesting, and I might write about this tomorrow, for Years, ever since Republicans took over the House and the Senate in 2015, they have avoided bringing up an, a labor HHS bill because the problem is that was too contentious because it officially – you know, that's all of healthcare. That's the entirety of healthcare. You're officially funding Obamacare directly. Now, obviously, in the omnibus CR, they're funding it, but you know, to isolate out its own appropriation bill, it was too toxic because you know, conservatives can then say they're funding Obamacare. So as a footnote, just as a way of showing they're completely over any effort to just disguise their love for Obamacare, they're now openly bringing that to the floor, and they're pairing it with defense. So the whole purpose was to pair other defense, security, sovereignty, border-related stuff with defense, and then we could have a discussion over health care over welfare programs in its own right, they're pairing it against the military. They're putting the gun to our head. And then in addition, they take all of the um, omnibus level spending and they actually increase it. They increase spending by $541 million for the Department of Education, which is already at an all-time high, another $2.3 billion for, NA, for HHS. All of the accounts that Trump planned to cut, National Institutes of Health, they get a record $37 billion in funding already last year. It's bumped up another $2 billion. Obviously, it has all the family program, Title 10 programs, um, funding for abortions. 
it contains, if you remember, this touches on immigration. See, this phony um, UAC, the unaccompanied alien children, which aren't unaccompanied because they're um, redistributed, they're reunited with their illegal alien relatives in America who themselves should be deported. That program is not run out of um, DHS. It's actually run out of HHS. The Office of Refugee Resettlement is an agency within HHS that's responsible for this garbage. They fully fund the program without any riders. You know, this is the place where you would put, actually put a rider that says, look, anyone who is not a severe victim of trafficking, and indeed their parents are paying traffickers to reunite them with other relatives in America, which is like 95% of them, they're ineligible. That's what we should be saying. But no, they don't have that. So, I mean, this is what they're doing. And, and again, they're making a mockery out of Trump's budget. Every single thing he promised to cut, they increased last year, and now they're increasing that even more. But you're not going to hear this anywhere else. But this is how, you know, the Democrats, despite all their complaints, Trump's cutting this, he's doing that. I laugh because these budgets were just, you know, blueprints. They never were enacted into law, and the actual stuff that they're passing do the exact opposite. I'm saying in almost all these programs, the, the spending levels are higher than under Obama's second term. So, um, you know, that's Republicans for you. And, and, and by the way, in case some of you saw the headlines last week from, you know, the CBO, where they're trying to say, oh, that the tax cuts created, uh, grew the deficit. The t- for the last time, the tax cuts didn't grow the deficit. Because revenue increased. Now, they would argue, yeah, it's increasing because it's a good economy, and it would have increased even more without the tax cuts. Now, number one, some of that is counterintuitive because without tax cuts, you wouldn't have had as much increased economic productivity. But yeah, I mean some of the baseline, especially on the corporate tax revenue, I agree with, but that's not adding to the deficit. Right. If revenue is going up, just not as much as you wanted it to, that's not adding to the deficit. What's adding to the deficit is the increased spending. Now, you want to you expected that the increased spending wouldn't be as painful in creating as much of a deficit because you anticipated a greater budget, a greater revenue haul. Fine. But that's very dishonest. Just so you know, this dishonesty of saying the tax cuts created the growing deficit. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I mean, this is the thing aside from the spending, just the policies, why don't you put them on record as opposing the military, put ice and the military and the wall, put it all in one bill. Instead, they put Obamacare, um, community block grant programs. I mean, there's all title 10, all sorts of garbage. Unbelievable. Um, it's just what what a way to motivate your base republicans good 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 job okay so now on to immigration you know there's always a lot going on on that beat there's always a lot for me to say some of this you know especially those of you that have followed from the stolen sovereignty days when the book came out some of this is is review um but a lot of this might be new and I, and i think it's worth repeating in this context so so two things happen that that i'm focusing on Two things uh, recently. Last week, Laura Ingram, you know, was lamenting on her show that you know this is just 
this ain't America anymore. The, the degree of immigration we've had um, is just is so unprecedented. It, it, it is so just in the nature and the amount of it, in, in the way we are as a nation, that this is just not America anymore. And, you know, and everyone jumps on her, um, whether it's obviously the, the regular liberal media or – you know, just simply all the virtue signalers on the National Review type of right. Oh no, this is terrible. Uh, she's she's saying she doesn't like uh, um, anyone who's not white. She's a white nationalist. This and that. And, and look, you know, I I can't speak for everything Laura Ingram Ingram says the way she says it. Um, I don't agree with her on every issue. I used to, you know, be a regular guest on her show to talk about immigration, not the TV show. This is before she had it. This was the radio show. Um, as was as was the case with Hannity, I kind of stepped back during the primaries and everything with Cruz and Trump when you know they were going all in for Trump, and you know I just felt there was no people were kind of losing their way, and you know I just wanted to retain my independence. But you know I'm not going to go and um, you know go the other direction and disagree with things that she says that I used to agree with. And just to hold that thought for a minute. The second thing is so. Politico has this sick vendetta, the sick obsession with Stephen Miller. It, it, just in general, there's this mystique around Stephen Miller. It's kind of like, ironically, if you think about it, the way the left viewed Karl Rove, if you remember, during eh, roughly 2005-2006 era, that they thought there was this evil genius in the background that somehow managed to secure a second term for Bush. And you know everything that happened in the world was because of Karl Rove. And it's funny because Karl Rove was an open borders guy. So it's a similar thing here. They think like you know Stephen Miller is lurking around in the background and just you know any time Trump succeeds in winning on a election or a policy issue, it's all Stephen Miller. And there's just this maniacal obsession with him uh, that they have. So. You know, a while back, a couple months ago, political Politico drudged up this article from someone who claims to have been in his third third grade class with him in, in public school, um, and how he poured glitter on his desk or something. I mean, it was it was really low. So this time they published this article from a guy who says he is um, Stephen Miller's uncle, and. Uh, he's some sort of professor at university in Boston, and he basically says, "You know, shame on my nephew. He's advocating stuff that would have kept his own family out. Um, unbelievable. You know, basically, you know, he's part of his family was you know these Eastern European Jewish immigrants who came in 1902 or whatever, and if his policies would have been in existence." Then they would have, I guess, the thesis is they would have remained. It will link to this in show notes. He would have, they would have remained in, um, you know, Europe, Poland, whatever, through uh, you know the the twentieth century, and and they would have been wiped out by Hitler when he took over. And uh, you know, then went on to create to compare, you know, everything else with his policies, I guess, with Latin America, with the Middle East, to what's going on there. So you know. Everything is is Nazis, Holocaust, you know, right right off the bat, everything gets compared to Nazis in the Holocaust, right? It's it's all the same. Immigration is all the same. There's no circumspection. There's no um, judicious analysis as to numbers, times, amounts, 
what America was like then, what it's like now, what we needed then, what we needed now, the nature of immigration then, the nature of immigration now, um, you know, stuff that we have spoken about in long form, hours of podcasts, um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words of writings in addition to my book. You know, we've we've really gone through, but but this is the long form discussion. The other side is incapable of having on immigration because it's just you just say Holocaust and Nazi, and then you know, it it just um everything goes downhill from there. You know, I think perhaps the best way of approaching this is by using this example of this crazy uncle of Stephen Miller's about Jews. I think Jews are a very good springboard from which to have this discussion. Because if they actually understood our history, traditions, laws on immigration as compared to the current trends and outcomes and the purpose of immigration – they would understand that they're actually refuting their own point. Because the Jewish immigration that they're describing is actually the antithesis of what they're advocating for now. And the people for whom whom we're trying to keep out, so to speak, now – and again, keep out the premises that everyone automatically has a right to be here, and we're the ones taking – being active. Like they're passive, and we're the ones doing the action. We're keeping out. Um, I, I hate that term because, again, it presupposes that there's some sort of right to immigrate. Um, so you know, th- this is as old as the Bible. <laughs> you know, God promises that uh, – you know. You keep my commandments, you keep my ways, your commonwealth in the Holy Land in Judea is going to last, you'll be prosperous, each man will live under his uh, fig tree and peace and prosperity. But if you don't keep the biblical values, if you go ahead and inculcate your culture with the pagan immorality that I drove out for you. You know, this is where the term thorn in the side comes from. God tells tells them if you don't drive out the Canaanites and the pagans, they're going to be a thorn in your side. So then you're going to wind up committing those sins and I'm going to drive you out. The land's going to spit you out as it did other people and you're going to be scattered across the world and you're going to be persecuted. This is literally one of the biggest proofs of God's existence and the veracity of the Bible. You know, a lot of people want to look philosophically, look scientifically, but historically, it literally, it's like, you know, Babe Ruth calling his shot. God called his shot and it happened. I mean, it's unbelievable how how it happened. You're going to do idolatry. You're going to commit sins. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be the most persecuted people. But even with all that, you're still going to survive. Whereas any other nation that suffered anywhere near that degree of persecution, dispersion without a nation state ceased to exist. So all of that, the the the, the curses and the blessings, the, the good and the bad, all became true. That prophecy and um, promise from God came true. Um, God even had this vivid display that he set up the minute they stepped f- um, forth in the land of Israel with Joshua bringing them in. 
you know, had half the tribes go up on on one mountain, half the tribes go up on another mountain. You could actually see those mountains um today in uh um Samaria. You, know, you could just see exactly what the Bible is talking about there. Uh, just this vivid display of you know God literally made a made a promise, and they had to swear and say Amen, Amen. If we do this, we're gonna thrive. If we do this, we're gonna get kicked out, and and it happened. God called his shot. Why am I telling all, t- telling you all this? Of all people, the Jews are Jews are kind of the best type of immigrants you can get. What do I mean by that? Now, aside from the fact that many Jews brought liberalism with them, which wasn't good. But I mean in terms of concern about bringing in the ills of the population you're coming from. Right what are we talking about? The Jews that came in, you know, like you know, my my parent my um forefathers are the same thing as what this guy's trying to say about Stephen Miller. They all came in from whatever the 1881 to 1920 wave of immigration from various parts of Europe and they're persecuted. What you didn't have to worry about was, oh man, well, okay, the Jews are being persecuted by the Kazakhs and let's say Ukraine. Oh man, we're bringing the Kazakh culture here. No, because they were completely disentangled from them. They were a persecuted minority that was very distinct from where you're bringing them in. What you're bringing in now, whether it's those from Latin America or the Middle East, they are of the same people that are doing the persecution. Some of them are doing the persecution, which really in the case of Latin America is not persecution, it's just general violence. Some are not violent at all, and some are susceptible to joining it, depending on the situation. There's no way for us to disentangle that. See, I, I've said this a number of times. You know, I don't even think for this audience we need to discuss the danger of doubling and tripling Middle Eastern immigration at a time of radical jihad and cyber jihad and everything like that. But let's just talk about Latin America. And let's just talk about just one aspect before we get into public charge and the economic side of it. Just talk about the security side of it. I want to flag for you a very important article I'm going to link to in show notes, the debate over underage immigration, mainly talking about these young migrants from Central America. Um, this was written by, you know, um, in American Interest magazine, David Stoll. I, I don't know who he is, but it's, it's just, I've never, you know, read his stuff before, but just amazing. He brings out a point we've been making here that, when you bring when you have mass migration from a third world country that's violent and impoverished but the people you're bringing in aren't some sort of unique um distinct people that you could disentangle but they are part and parcel of that general population so if you bring in large numbers of it, you're bringing in that country and all of its problems. And the point I made is that it's not just that you're hurting America. You're hurting the very people that might you know, in a vacuum come here and make a better life for themselves because you're actually bringing El Salvador to America and to the neighborhoods that they're coming to. And you know, I've quoted before quotes from illegal immigrants that, that have lost kids not in El Salvador but in America due to MS-13 – 
how they were saying, man, I, I, I fled this stuff, and now uh, it, it's coming here. You know, it would be the equivalent of bringing in the Cossacks, you know, to America. You know, they come in on their horses and the axes in, in streets of America, killing Jews or whoever else. But we didn't do that. I, I just want to quote to you from, from this guy's article, and again, we'll link to it. 17 murders, this is talking about Long Island with, with the big problem since we brought in all these UACs since 2014. 17 murders, including five in a single high school, raised the question. Exactly who is capable of picking out gang members from a mass migration? Who is capable of doing so without error and without triggering losses by civil libertarians? Which matters more, civil liberties or physical safety? Look at this line, beautifully written. If Salvadorans are fleeing not the Salvadoran state, but their fellow Salvadorans, won't a generous policy of admitting Salvadorans reproduce the dangers they face on U.S. soil? <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, the, that's the money quote there. And certainly it's the same thing with the Middle East. You bring in the Middle East, you're bringing in the Middle East. So I left when these bastards have the nerve to compare letting in Jews who were persecuted then or maybe not letting in enough of them later on in the 1930s when things were getting better with the Nazis to what's going on now because this is the equivalent of bringing in the Nazis if you want to go and make that comparison. You can't disentangle that. I mean, the best equivalent would be bringing in Yazidis in Iraq, but you know, everyone would have been willing to bring them in. The reality is they they actually would have didn't really want to come. They wanted to settle in the Kurdish areas, you know, and stay in, closer to their homeland, which the Kurds offered to do. But this is what it is. The the comparisons from now to, to 120 years ago don't even get off the ground. We didn't have a welfare state. We didn't have this insane culture, multicultural. America had a very strong identity. It was a very strong pressure to join that um, that culture. You didn't have this mollycoddling. You had the exact opposite. You had around the same time, you had presidents like, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Teddy Roosevelt saying, we have room for but one, one flag, the American flag. We have room for but one language, and that is the English language. They talk about, oh, Stephen Miller's parents came here and they spoke whatever, Polish or Yiddish or German. Um, yeah, but we weren't giving State of the Union responses and campaign addresses and having senatorial campaigns challenge their opponents to debate in Yiddish. Okay? And by the way, as, as it relates to language, so there's a number of things to be said. Y you have to compare what we were looking for then and with the way the world was to now. Back then, by definition, even the best immigrants you were going to get, the world was completely isolated and cut off. There was no communication from one part of the world to another. So it was an extremely rare thing that you're going to know English unless you came from the few English-speaking countries, Australia, England, whatever. Canada. Aside from that, you know, you just you just weren't going to know English. But the point is, they came here, and because of the culture, and you didn't have programs, and you didn't have ELL programs, these emerging language learner programs, you didn't have 
the litigation we have where Mexicans can now, as we have an article out today, Mexicans can now sue border agents. They can come here and demand rights and sue. No, they came here, kept their head down, and Americanized. And, and by the way, the big thing with the language is 22% of the U.S. now speaks a foreign language at home. 45% of California alone. But here's the kicker. There's nothing inherently wrong with an immigrant speaking a foreign language at home that is bound to happen with any group of immigrants, right? And that indeed happened during the Great Wave. But A, the sheer number is alarming. That just gives you an indication of how much we have. But there's a couple of important things here. 26.1 million told census interviewers interviewers that they speak English less than very well. Okay? That's a lot of people. 18.7 million of those who currently speak foreign languages at home are native-born adults. So this means that we're not just talking about immigrants or native-born children who speak English you know, fluently outside the home but use another language to converse with their immigrant parents. This means we're talking about people next generation already speaking another language than English at home. That never happened. You could bet your bottom dollar those kids who came here um, you know, they didn't only know Yiddish or Polish or German. You better believe they spoke English. The America they were coming to was a different America. The nature of the immigrants were different. You know, I resent the comparisons, none other than the famous Democrat senator from New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He said he had a great comment. He once said, um, you know, contrary to this nostalgic revisionism that you know some people talk about with the poem of the Statue of Liberty, he said the immigrants of the Great Wave quote were not this wretched refuse of anybody's shores. They were quote extraordinary, enterprising, self-sufficient folk who knew exactly what they were doing and doing it quite on their own. Thank you very much. That's the entire difference. Also, again, we weren't a mature country. We were still filling up as a nation. We were still a relatively new nation. You can't compare it to the, the needs of a fully populated post-industrial country You know, that's not new. Meaning it's very different. Uh, for, for example, certainly someone coming in 1780s, you're not going to view them so much as an immigrant. That's a pioneer. Now, yeah, relative to everyone else, as you know, in the 1880s, 1920s, they were viewed as immigrants. But relative to today, they were much more like pioneers than an immigrant, which is why no other country has as much immigration because they're, you know, France, Germany. Now they get a tremendous amount from the Middle East, but in general, most other countries don't have as much immigration as we have because they're they're older, more established countries, and that's that's the position we're at now. We don't need it. And yes, some of the immigrants were poor and weren't that educated, but either way, it was sink or swim. They, they, there was no public charge. You could not be a public charge. Period. And also, again, you have to compare, meaning were my ancestors from Germany, Austria, Poland, some from Russia, you know, Russian provinces, Belarus, I guess. Were they different than America at the time? Yes. 
but the gulf wasn't as wide as between El Salvador, Yemen, or Somalia and America in the year 2018. You know, this is the whole debate about a literacy test. It was a big debate at the time. And Grover Cleveland, who didn't want mass migration, he opposed a, a liter- um, uh, you know, this sort of litmus test just because a massive percentage of Americans weren't literate at the time. It, it wasn't – that wasn't necessarily what was needed. Nowadays, you know, to have people that are essentially illiterate, which many of them are, even in their own languages, that's a huge problem. It's a different time. But I wanna I wanna focus in particular on the economic parts of this. You know, we don't even have to talk about safety and and the crime that they never tolerated this. From the times of the colonial times onwards, the first colonies, particularly the northern colonies like Massachusetts in the 1600s, not just the 1700s, 1600s. I have a lot of um, literature in my library on immigration speaking about the colonial era laws barring anyone that they felt because they were concerned that Europe um, was going to retaliate and dump their garbage on our soil. They didn't put up with that. You can never come here and be a bad character. They'd, They'd ship you right back. And certainly you never got citizenship. I mean, because that, that was regulated at a federal level from the founding of, of the republic. But certainly regulated both on the entry and on the naturalization level um, earlier at, at, a, at a colonial level. And the states under the Articles of Confederation for that short period of time. And again, this was at a time that they dramatically they, they desperately needed people they needed warm bodies to fill up the frontier and and uh, you know with the you know the dangers they had from the indians but it was it was a no brainer no brainer that we wouldn't bring in people that endanger us and and if you look at the criminal alien problem we have in this country if you look at the enterprise of middle easterners we bring in you know i just want to just re- deviate just real briefly before we get to public charge, my buddy Derek Maltz, he's been making more waves. Uh, Daily Caller has a write-up from him. He called into Mark Levin's show just straight up. I, you know, I, I told him, I said, look, you know, maybe I should get you on Mark's show as a guest. But he called in as like, you know, just a caller, um, former uh, head of Special Operations Division. And he said, you know, a lot of people are talking about Bruce Orr and Peter Strzok and the whole – Mueller scandal, there's a whole other angle here that you know a lot of people are just focusing on the Russia scandal or their relationship with researching the Hillary um, email scandal. But these were people that broadly were in charge of counterterrorism as well. And Derek, my buddy, he always tells me he has the goods on or Mueller, Comey, all these guys, how they failed us in counterterrorism that he personally warned people like Bruce Orr. Bruce Orr, when he was associate attorney general, about – about the problems with this, the drugs and counter and um, terror financing, that over three hundred immigrant from the immigrant owned from the Middle East businesses in America were hooked into this terror financing with drugs, K two spice contraband, and they just totally didn't care, or or maybe they did. But didn't want to deal with it because they didn't want to be accused of being like Laura Ingram or Stephen Miller. 
But the notion that we should ever, that immigration should ever harm Americans, it is foreign, foreign to them. And, and, and that is, again, you read my book, chapter 6 and 7, you'll see that very clearly. Stolen sovereignty. But public charge, I wrote an article about this last week. want to just you know, go back to discussing this, you know, how they're saying, oh, Stephen Miller, what the heck? He's going in and saying anyone who's a public charge, you're not going to get citizenship and wants to even deny uh, green cards to them. Um, it's, it's current law. It's not only is it current law, it is the law on the book since the founding colonies. They called them paupers often. They were called anti-pauper laws at the time. Again, it started with Massachusetts and it trickled down. Pennsylvania had them. Maryland had them. Virginia had them. Every state had them. You could never be a public charge. It went back to the landing craft when the boats would come in. They would downright um, – they started punishing uh, the owners of the ship vessels if they would transport people who could not support themselves. And um, or, or they would have to sign an affidavit and pay a bond that they would have to support them for X number of years. So um, – and again, the, it, there, was, there were no welfare programs. We're talking about – and this is, by the way, a whole other rich history that's been forgotten. The civil societal organizations that worked independently and a little bit with government to take care of the indigent, indigent people, um, You know that was a whole long history. I was like, well, what did we do before welfare? Um, we could have a very good civil society with that now, even much better than they had back then if we didn't have government boxing that out. But – you know that's what they were concerned about. I wasn't like, oh, I don't want them to be on welfare. They didn't have welfare, but still they were concerned they would drain the public. That that was always a no brainer, and it wasn't a matter of being mean. You know, I laugh. I laugh at how they say, oh, you know, oh, your your uh, great grandparents, oh, they came in like this. No, no one came in under these this guys. I have an article out on the link to in show notes. Um, some of you might have seen when it came out at the time, but I didn't spend enough time on it. When I talk about the top 20 sending countries, I have a whole chart. I, I say, well, what are the top immigrant countries we have? And you look at them, Mexico, the Central American Triangle, almost all of them have much higher um, poverty rates, higher welfare usage. And obviously the – top sending countries, almost all of them, have the lowest proficiency rating in the fluency of the English language. And again, in this era where there are so many people in Europe and elsewhere in the world that do speak English now, you know, those are our needs. You know, it's not that that's the way the world is, nothing personal. I certainly understand if you're somewhere else, you're not speaking English, but that is going to be a priority based on the world we live in today. And the immigrants that we have available. thats It's only fair to the American people. It was always the understanding that your first duty, just like the head of a household, your duty is to your wife and your kids. As elected representatives in crafting laws and policies, they always have to benefit Americans. But you look, it's, it's, it's staggering. 
Mexico, top sending country, obviously. Not just of illegal, legal immigrants. 60.3% receive some benefit program. Just insane. It's against the law. It's never supposed to be this way. You know, there, there's there's a lot of myths. There's uh, th- there's a myth about our immigration system in the 1800s and our immigration system like from 1880 to 1920. There's this nostalgia how we're so open and warm and fuzzy and anyone could come. And, we, and, 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 and it's Stephen Miller is just coming in, Nazi, white nationalist who happens to be Jewish, but he's a disgrace to his heritage. Um, and this guy is just inventing this crazy stuff. And really, it's the opposite. It's that we've never done what we've been doing in recent years. We've never transformed America the way we've done. And, and again, it's understanding what the baseline is when you talk about numbers and trends. We never had numbers like this. You can't be an idiot. Where's the baseline? Meaning, let's say I say tomorrow, I'm going, like, let's say I'm the one being racial, not you. And I say, I'm going to take, let me just, um, let me just make it up. Um, Carroll County, Maryland. That's the county next to where I live. I don't live in Carroll. I live in Baltimore County. Um, Carroll County. So let me let me just look it up as I'm talking to you. So Carroll County. What what, what what's the census data there? Um, and again, most of this discussion is not about race. They're making it about race. So let's talk about race for a minute. So Carroll County is what do we got here? 2010 census. They are 93% white. Okay, 93% white. Let's say I start an agenda. The browning of Carroll County, Maryland. And I say, I'm going to bring in so, – so what's the population? The population of the county is um, – yeah, it's a relatively small county, 167,000 people, 167,000, 93% white. And I say, I'm going to bring in tens of thousands of people in the coming years from places with just the agenda of browning it, among other agendas. Well – and and you're living in Carroll County, you're like, dude, like, no, I mean, this this is not the America. I'm, this is not what I'm, you know, this is not the place I grew up in. It's not what I want. Does that make you a white nationalist? I mean, where's the baseline? They're making it seem like an unlimited amount of whatever they want to do is the baseline, and what we want to do is racist. Well, what if what we want to do is actually very generous relative to past history, and what you're doing is racist? You know, numbers matter. You, you you can't do that. Everyone used to understand that. I mean, this is where where you know Ted Kennedy got up there and said, "No one's going to be a public charge under this bill. It's not going to upset the racial balance. It's not." He said that. Even Ted Kennedy. Now he lied, but he felt the need to say that. You can't. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, in in 90 percent of the immigrants were from Europe. Um, since 1965, you know, just 10% were, and 51% were from Latin America alone, 30% from Mexico alone, 30% from one country. Who, who gave them a monopoly? Mark Levin is one of the few that has the guts to, to, to address this issue. It's like, well, what does this mean? What are you talking about? You're the ones with the agenda. 
And again, you look at the poverty. In 1970, the poverty rate among immigrants, right? Because 1970 was just on the cusp of when the, you know, Heart Seller Act was starting to take effect. But it was still, you know, that was kind of like the nadir from the Great Wave. Poverty rate was 18%, only slightly higher than the 14% of the native born. But now the poverty rate among immigrants is 28% compared to 15% among Native Americans. And again, when you look at um, the chart that I'm going to put up in show notes, you'll see it's not all uniform. It depends. There are certain parts of the world, Canada, parts of Europe, India, for example. Most of the immigrants from India, some of the Far Eastern countries have a much lower poverty rate. Some are even lower than than the American um, average. But there's very prominent places, and among them, some of the largest sending countries that we're taking in from have among the highest poverty rate, the lowest um, median income. And again, that would be bad enough if they're not on welfare, but they are on welfare. We never did this in our history. So... You know, look, I've already – it's already late into the show, and I meant to delve into this more. Um, some of it's in my book, but you know, you look at the 1800s. There's this, there's this widely perceived myth that called the, the century-long open borders, the century of unregulated immigration that we never had – You know, really, if you go back far enough, the true originalist approach – is to have open borders, right? You'll you'll find that thought process among a lot of libertarians, corporate libertarians, and you know, because because the it's built on the premise that you didn't really have federal immigration laws until you know the first ones were 1875, and then the real ones were in the you know 1880s, starting with 1882. But the reality is, it's a, there's a very deep discussion. There's a lot of factors, but the the short of it is that. So naturalization was regulated from day one, and believe me, <laughs> I mean, look, you know, they only naturalized whites, and um, you know, it was extremely restrictive. Uh, but certainly with public charge and criminals, I mean, that was a non-starter. Um, you know, that was that was just a no-brainer. So they always regulated that. The, the short of it is that the regulation always kept up with the pace of what was needed. As soon as something became a problem, they regulated it. Until it wasn't, you have to realize in the 1790s, regulating naturalization was the equivalent of regulating immigration today. Because if you regulated that, if you couldn't get citizenship, you wouldn't come. And so few people came. The, a, it was hard to bring – it was hard to regulate it because it was hard to communicate. You didn't have communication. You didn't have transportation. So whoever came, came. There was a trickle of people commensurate with the need, they started regulating it. And then the states, first the colonies, and then the states regulated it from day one. The states regulated it from day one. Remember what I told you before. It's the the, the relationship between the states and the feds as it relates to immigration is a one-way ratchet, meaning – the idea was states could be more restrictive than the federal government, but they couldn't be more liberal. 
Now, th- this was until the 1880s when the feds totally took it over. Then you can start, I mean, totally like blocking, you know, once they're duly let in by the by the federal union, um, as they can't block it anymore. But before then, they absolutely did. Um, the so-called border states back then, you know, now you think of as like Arizona and, and Texas. Back then, the border states were mainly the ports in Baltimore, New York, and Massachusetts. And those were the states where they they regulate. So again, colonial times heavily regulated. You know, even to the point that today we'd call it bigoted. You know, they tried to keep out Catholics. They tried to keep out people they didn't like. Um, you know, but again, you can't have it both ways. You can't say our history and tradition is open, but they're racist. Well, which one is it? It wasn't both. The reality is they were very restricted. Um, and there's a lot of scholarly literature on that era. But at the time we became a nation, from 1789 to through through Monroe, Quincy Adams, up until Andrew Jackson, we had remarkably low immigration. Immigration wasn't a thing. You didn't have mass. You didn't have passenger air, um, ship liners. That was the thing. So you didn't have. It was a trickle of people who came. It was literally a trickle. It, it was um, actually, in, in, as I write in my book, in eight, the 1819 State of the Union address. James Monroe notes how nice it was that you know the population was steadily growing, and he made sure to say it was almost all from the native population. They had very little immigration at that era. In other words, you had immigration, so to speak, during the colonial time, which you know again I would argue that's more pioneering. Um, certainly can't look at it the way we look at immigration today. And then you had it later, but that period of time in the early years you didn't have it, and it's clear that's what the founders wanted. Um, another thing that's important because of technology, meaning because you're coming – imagine you come over. There's no transportation. There's no communication. You have to risk dying on a ship liner. Like 20% would die. Um, so you have to realize you have to really make sure you had it. How do I get a job? What do I do? So you really didn't have immigration unless you were invited. If you weren't invited, you didn't have you didn't really have much of it, and that's the dynamic before the 1830s, 1840s with the Irish and then the Germans. You really didn't have mass migration. Um, and I have quotes from all the founders: Adams, Quincy Adams, um, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, George Washington. Um, how they all said that they we don't encourage migration. And that was that was restricting it. Back then, if you see nowadays, we view immigration as like Department of Homeland Security. But back then, it was actually diplomatic correspondence. It was through the State Department. Um, again, I have this a little bit in the footnotes of my book, not so much in um, in text in chapters uh, five and and uh, ch- chapter six and seven. Basically, um, you you had to be invited in. Now, you didn't have – there were people that could come. You're right. They could come. But believe me, if you were coming on your own, that is the biggest act of rugged individualism imaginable, and and they didn't mind that. It wasn't until the 1820s and 1830s they started coming. Really, late 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, that's when you had mass migration. Now, it's very clear – that at that time, they would have – the federal government, that is, would have started to clamp down on it 
and be a little bit more just you know keep more regulations now they did have the 1819 act of first just keeping account you had to register coming off it wasn't like a, just a free for all you just came here um they would have done it but the reason they didn't do it is because people forget that when you talked about migration pre-civil war it was a very political term so first of all you never had the, the term immigration didn't appear till like the 1870s um they used the word emigration with an e that we refer to as as the exiting not the entering um they used it both directions they used the term emigration at least from from my research that's what i found um but the word migration really was a very politically loaded term you know what it meant it meant the slave trade it was inextricably tied up in the politics of the pre-Civil War era. Um, now, you see this in the Constitution itself, by the way. Um, you know, the reality is that, you know, Article 1, Section 9 actually bars the federal government from regulating migration until 1808. Now, they didn't need to. Like I said, they didn't really have it. But that was because of the sensitivity of the census and the numbers and the balance of power between the states. It was all about the slave trade. That's what immigration meant, the slave trade. Now, why didn't they start doing it after 1808? Well, there was no need to do it then. Once you got to the 1830s and 1840s when you had immigration, that's when the country was a tinderbox, and that that it was all about the balance of power. Without the politics of pre-Civil War, um, it's very clear. Con Congress had hearings. They had committee reports on it. They were preparing to legislate, but it wasn't until after the Civil War that politically they were able to do it. But here's the thing. So first off, these were Irish. These were Germans. Very similar heritage. I know you're going to tell them, well, there was a know-nothings, didn't like them. I, I understand that. I'm just saying you're not talking about from Bhutan. And Somalia and El Salvador. I mean, they never could have pictured mass migration from there. Um, and you didn't have welfare. You didn't have welfare. You had a very strong American culture. You didn't have a litigation culture to demand stuff. It was sink or swim. But there's an entire history I go through in this piece. The states did regulate it. They had public charge laws. You couldn't land if you didn't have a guarantee you could be self-sufficient. This went to the Supreme Court because the question arose. So states were able to keep out immigrants until the federal government finally executed its Article 1, Section 8, enumerated power in Article 1, Section 9, you know, post-1808. They, they didn't exercise it till the 1870s, 1880s because of the reason I'm telling you, although, again, they did very much in the background most of the time ex with the exception of the wave of immigration from um, Ireland and Germany. They did control what they called undesirables through diplomatic relations. They did control that. Um, but the states did it. The states – the border states, meaning the ones with the ports, absolutely did block it. Um, but the question arose that, okay, but legally, aren't you messing with foreign commerce? That is a federal power. And again, 
this is just to understand. You see they viewed immigration as a State Department issue. It was an issue of foreign commerce. And by the way, there's a lot of implications for this to this very day that I've said this all along in the courts until they went you know, totally nuts. Meshuga, um, to use a Yiddish word for our uh, um, foes of uh, Stephen Miller and his crazy uncle, um, these the, the court said that immigration was inherent in, in the power to regulate foreign commerce, which is why, aside from Congress's power over immigration, naturalization, you have the president's power over foreign commerce. And this is why the president always – the executive branch could always keep people out, even if Congress wants them in. Now, certainly the president can't do the other way around, bring them in where Congress doesn't want them because then – then the minute they step for foot on, on the shores, that implicates immigration, and you can't do that without Congress. But you could prevent them because that's foreign commerce. But the question was you know, they had all sorts of laws basically um, with regulating the ships and how they'd come in and the, the owners of the ships and what they had to do. So the question was, well, aren't you infringing upon a federal power? So the court said in um, City of New York v. Milne, 1837, there can be no mode in which the power to regulate internal police could be more appropriately exercised. See, they're saying this is inherently internal, even though mechanically it's very much like foreign commerce. Can anything fall more directly within the police power and internal regulation of a state than that which concerns the care and management of paupers or convicts or any other class? Or a description of persons that may be thrown into the country and likely to endanger its safety or become chargeable for their maintenance. This is in the century of open borders, folks. This is the Supreme Court greenlighting the states. Like, yeah, you, you know, sure there were you know problems with some of the slums and conditions. People complained about the Irish immigrants, but you, it was not going to be a public charge. Not in the way we're seeing today. You better believe they regulated that. You better believe they – I mean you were deportable. They would make it that the ship liner had to pay the expense of bringing them back. There's a whole rich history behind this. Um, you know, and Maybe we'll, we'll discuss in more detail in future, future episodes. But I just want to end off by discussing you know, what happened later on in the Great Wave. So eventually you had the convergence of – the end of the Civil War, where now the Feds were stronger. Because you know, keep in mind, part of why they regulated is even though they had the power, the states were very strong. You know, it, it dates back to the founding of our country, where states were, you know, you had colonies. You didn't, you didn't have the federal government. Then you had the Articles of Confederation. It took a while. It wasn't really until after the Civil War where the federal government became stronger. But again, the states, the, particularly the port states, were the equivalent of what the feds did in terms of effectiveness. Now, eventually, it started becoming ineffective, and then you had the Eastern Central European migration. You started to have mass migration in 1881. That's right away. They took it over in 1875, 1881-1882, 1884-1885, 1887-1891. And then many years from oh, – throughout the next 20 years, all – a, a bunch of um, deportables that if you come here and you cannot support yourself, if you are fine to be a charge, you're deportable and you're – and the shipliner who brought you in has to pay for the charge. 
And it's essentially those laws that we passed, some of the same wording is still in statute. Still in statute. It should never be a public charge. To come full circle here, let me tell you a story in the form of a Supreme Court case ruling in 1925, Kaplan v. Todd, that will illuminate what the values of our country were on immigration, our history, our tradition, even at its most open period of time, the Great Wave, not the closed 1920s, 1930s, but the Great Wave, or at least it started in the Great Wave. I mean, it spilled over into the 1820s, the court case. And it will also illuminate something else, this big debate on birthright citizenship for people who come into this country or remain in the country against the consent of the American people and our laws. Kaplan v. Todd. So there was this nice Kaplan family that came over from Russia. Um, you know, you can imagine they're being persecuted. It's a pretty miserable place. Um, and what what usually happened, and again, you, you, you look at the self-sacrifice that took place back then, and you just see how different it was. It, there was no mollycoddling. It was literally, I mean, it was sink or swim. It's amazing how they look back. You know, the left likes to say, You're, you, Stephen Miller, are, are divorced from the traditions of your own great grandma. It's, it's actually not true. This actually is a story of Jewish immigrants from, from I guess, Russia. And um, it proves the exact opposite. So the, the father of the house, that would he would often come over, and th- in this case, he did, they would come over for five years. They wouldn't see each other. Five years. He would come alone so he could earn enough money and then eventually bring the family over. Um, you know, and you didn't have, uh, you know, iPhones that every poor, you know, Central American immigrant gets a hold of now and you could communicate. They didn't communicate except for snail mail. Um, you know, this is something that's often missed. I didn't even like, you know, as as I'm talking, I'm thinking about it. That in itself is a story. But anyway, the father came over and then I want to say it was 1916, 1917. Um, so maybe he came over like 1912, 1917. He calls for the family, which seems like consisted of a wife and a daughter. Daughter maybe eight, nine years old. Um, so this daughter, what happened was um, they came over, and contrary to the warm and fuzzy nostalgic talk about you know how open we, we were, and again, this was during still towards the end of the open period, um, Ellis Island, Emma Lazarus's poem, for all the talk about that, they took one look at the kid. And they said, feeble-minded, inadmissible, right? Pursuant to statute, you were inadmissible as feeble-minded. Now, you can imagine that happening today. I mean, you know, picture, we let in all sorts of crap. These Yemeni-owned bodegas that sell K2 spice and poison, poison our people and commit terrorism. We have terrorist relatives on our shores. We have MS-13. We have all sorts of stuff. You have this nice Jewish family coming over from Russia, 
ain't gonna harm anyone. And they have this little little girl is a feeble-minded, inadmissible. So, you know, for first off, just this notion of how open we were is, is such bullcrap, it's not even funny. But so anyway, and you could imagine this, this guy works for five years, bring, brings him over. No, you're, you're out of here. The mother and daughter go back. Now, what happened was they couldn't go back because Europe blew up with World War I. So they agreed under humanitarian concerns to give her temporary harbor on American soil with the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society assuming the entire payment of it, that it, the taxpayers should never be responsible, even even during this you know, extenuating cir- circumstance, and they're monitored and whatever, and that was it. Now, it took a while to finally catch up with them, so it seems like it wasn't until the mid-20s, um, but they caught up with her to, all right, now, now it's time to go, deport her. So the father sued in federal court under a very interesting um, interesting uh, legal rationale. Now, so, so first off, you, you just see how, how rigid they were. I mean, you think this one girl, I mean, it's a nice family. The guy became an American citizen already. It's his wife. It's his kid. I mean, the, the guy was already an American citizen by now. Uh, he, at some point during World War One, the father became an American citizen. That's how rigid they were with the, the laws, the law. This is what the People's Congress passed. And as cruel as it sounds, we got to look for the American people first. Unbelievable. Saying like that's how rigid they were. Nothing like what we're even proposing today. So, anyway, so that that that's that part. I just want you to take out that lesson. You know, you talk about Jewish immigration and everything, and you know that that that's what was going on back then. But as a side point, I just want to show you a fascinating thought process that has bearings on birthright citizenship. Um, I want to show you this case. So. The father became a citizen. Now, the father wanted to claim that there, there is a law of residual citizenship that if, let's say, um, you know, a father, a, a parent becomes a citizen. So there's certain uh, conditions. Is you know, there's the time. There's the all the conditions you have to meet. Um, if you have a child that's under eighteen. That is simultaneously that is naturalizing with you. You could extend your naturalization to their status, so long as they were on American soil for a certain number of years. Okay. So in this case, the father had become a citizen three years earlier, nineteen twenty-three. And he asserted that because his daughter was actually 21, she was under 21 at the time of his naturalization and was living in the United States, she should automatically be granted his citizenship alongside him pursuant to longstanding law. Right? So, so basically, she physically lived with her father on American soil for nine years, partly with temporary permission from the government. You know, maybe the certain number of years it was she was considered an illegal, 
and they just didn't catch up with her. But she was, you know, she was on American soil. And and that's that's the rule. So like, you know, for example, today, I, I, I'm forgetting the law. I believe it's um is it five years? It's something like in other words, even if they wouldn't meet the standards in their own right, I don't have the statute in front of me, but if they are on the soil here for five maybe conti- con- continuous years and the father or the mother is naturalizing, they get naturalized with them. And then obviously if she's legitimately naturalized, so then um, you can't deport her. She's an American citizen. You know what the court said? This was like a unanimous terse decision. It was like three paragraphs long. They said naturalization of parents affects minor children only if, quote, if dwelling in the United States. Statute says you have to be dwelling in the United States with your parent. The appellant could not lawfully have landed in the United States in view of the express prohibition of the Act of 1910 just referred to. And until she legally landed, could not have dwelt within the United States. Think about this for a minute. These losers want to say that because it says that if you're born on American soil, oh, and subject to the jurisdiction, they forget about the line. They want to say that if, even if you, if you break into our country, come here illegally and have a child, that child is automatically a natural-born citizen. I'm going to prove to you that that's not true, even if you didn't have the second clause of the 14th Amendment subject to jurisdiction there. Obviously, you understand that you can't unilaterally assert jurisdiction. It's obviously even if you apply Wong Kim Ark, um, which created categorical birthright citizenship for legal immigrants, there's no way you could apply it to people that break into our country without our consent or remain here longer than the consent period, a temporary visa, whatever, tourist visa, and just do their thing. Um, that's obviously not true. But even if you didn't have subject to the jurisdiction thereof, there's something people are forgetting. Even if it just said you're born on the soil, so I'm born on the soil. I'm going to prove to you from naturalization law, which the same principle should apply to natural born, that it's not true. There's something they're forgetting. And this has bearings on a lot of – on almost anything we discuss in immigration in this day and age with rights and litigation and all sorts of things. If you're not – if you're an illegal immigrant, if you're not here with the consent, if you're not eligible, if you're not an admissible alien, it's as if you are physically not on our soil. It's as if you are physically standing outside the boundaries as the government said in Kaplan v. Todd. And Karen Henderson actually recently cited this case in her dissent in that abortion case for an illegal alien minor. It's as if you're not here. And that's – you know so this case, she was consensually allowed in the country. Her father was an American citizen. She was temporarily allowed in because of World War I. And the language of statute is actually more soily, so to speak. I'm, I'm making up a term. It's more literal, soiled, dwelling in our country. She, you can't deny it. she was dwelling in our country. Where was she? She was in New York. But nonetheless – if you are not an admissible alien, it's as if you're standing outside our boundaries in the most literal, physical sense that it's as if you're not here and therefore you can't get naturalization along with your parent. How much more so in a case where an illegal sneaks into our country, never let in, against our will, 
It's as if they're not here. Oh, no, I had a kid on our soil. No, you didn't. You're not on our soil. Come on, Daniel. What do you mean? Of course they're on our soil. No. Kaplan v. Todd was cited. It's, it's, it's set a law. That's our history and tradition on immigration, and I just wanted you to understand that birthright case. I hope I explained it enough. I know – I mean it deserves its own show, but um, I just wanted to get this off my shoulders until this week heats up with some other issues. I wanted to give a little bit more of a history lesson, foundational thing here. Don't let your crazy uncles and your family lie to you about our histories, history, traditions, and laws on immigration. This is the raw truth. Get Stolen Sovereignty is still available on Amazon, um, and we're going to continue this theme in many more of our writings. Thank you so much. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.